Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bold Sidebar podcast. This is your host, Jeff Horn. We are talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. Remember, the court does not in any way endorse or sanction this podcast. And of course, this is not legal advice specific to your case, but hopefully interesting talk about things happening around the court, including a number of opinions. But let me start where we are in terms of the roster on the court. Over the past couple of months, we have now lost two justices. Justice Jane Levecchia attempted to retire last summer of 2021, and it is alleged was persuaded by the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Grabner, to hang in until the end of the year, which she did, the hope being that Governor Murphy's nominee, Rachel Wainer after, would have been able to work through the Senate nomination process and we would have a full roster by the end of 2021. A nominee, Wayne Raptor, was blocked by a local senator. And uh, you can read some news accounts here and there. It seems like that might be getting worked out. Governor Murphy has renominated Rachel Wainer after for the New Jersey Supreme Court. So hopefully that will get done. Again, as I spoke quite a bit about last year, I don't think anyone questions the credentials of the nominee. And there may just be political deals that need to get done in order to have Rachel Wayner after become Justice Wayner after soon enough. In the meantime, Justice Fernandez Vina retired once again, not because of his own choice, but uh, constitutional senility, I believe, is what Justice O'Hearn called it. When you turn 70, you are automatically retired. So on February 15, 2022, Justice Fernandez Mina turned 70. So now we have two vacancies. The court has taken the step of elevating Judge Jose Fuentes, the senior judge in the appellate division, to the court. So we do have a six-justice roster right now, and Judge Fuentes can serve as long as he is subject to Justice Rabner's order. So hopefully we don't run into another Lodzinski situation. Anyone familiar with the podcast knows I cannot get enough of the Michelle Lodzinski disappearance of Timothy Wilty case. The Lodzinski case, of course, has been up and back to the court, including because there was a 3-3 tie that affirmed her conviction. Then there was reconsideration, and with a full slate of seven justices, four justices voted to overturn the conviction and acquit Michelle Lodzinski. Enough of that, who knows, we might dig into the actual follow-up opinion. But today I've got four opinions for you, and I'm trying out this format of batching things that are perhaps a little more similar. Earlier this year, in 2022, I batched a bunch of state V cases, criminal cases, sentencing cases, etc. Now I've got some civil cases that, although they're not in any way connected, perhaps the theme might be better for the listener so that the brain can stay on issues of torts and compensation and uh, insurance and, and the like versus back and forth. We'll try it out. The first case is Mead versus Township of Livingston and 
our now former justice, Fernandez Vina, writing for a unanimous court, found that Michelle Mead, who had been the township manager, had a viable claim under the law against discrimination, even where it, the discrimination had a bottom-up element to it. Mead, as the township manager, was in charge of running the whole town, including the police department. So the chief of police, a gentleman named Handsuch, H-A-N-D-S-C-H-U-C-H, reported to her. She was his supervisor. They had a number of run-ins, including an exercise where the emergency services unit or emergency response unit was doing a drill, and it was done in proximity to a preschool, causing a lockdown and a lot of commotion, so that officers in the PD actually wrote a number of summonses and complaints against Meade. There's a lot to this in terms of the, the day-to-day of kind of who struck John. He and such wasn't going to meetings. He was required to go to labor council, told Meade that uh, she should build a case for termination, that she didn't have enough for termination, but she certainly had enough to build a case and maybe some interim discipline. At least one, perhaps two, council members stated aloud that and such didn't like reporting to a female. Well, because it's a lad case, you know, Mead was terminated. A number of reasons were given, including her challenges in supervising the police department. Now, Mead and Labor Council had sought approval from the municipal governing body to hire an outsider to investigate the chief's poor conduct on the job, and the governing body declined to fund the retention of an outsider to do the investigation. So Mead felt her hands were tied following the advice of counsel. She needed more, and yet she didn't have the resources to put together the investigation. So uh, at the trial level, summary judgment was granted for the township, the municipality, and the case makes its way back up to the Supreme Court to address this issue of the bottom-up discrimination, worth mentioning just kind of the standard. So this is a burden-shifting statute. It is the job of the aggrieved employee, the person who's been discriminated against, to demonstrate a prima facie case that meets the requirements of the cases going back to McDonnell Douglas, Zive v. Stanley Roberts, that they meet the, the uh, four criteria for proving a cause of action under the LAD. One, that the plaintiff is in a protected group. Two, that the plaintiff's job performance met the expected standards. Three, that the person was terminated. And four, that the job was filled by someone else thereafter. So once a plaintiff is able to make a prima facie case of all four of those elements, then the burden shifts to the defendant to demonstrate a non discriminatory reason for terminating the employee. And then step three is the opportunity for the plaintiff to show that the discriminatory firing, the reasons given for the discriminatory firing were themselves discriminatory or pretextual for the real reason. Now there's a uh, Michi that comes in here, National Employment Lawyers Association 
who proposed what is known as the cat's paw theory. Tuck that away for a second and get back to it. So the standard that uh, Justice Fernandez Vina announced here is that a cause of action will survive summary judgment when the non-decision maker, the discrimination or the discriminatory views of the non-decision maker result in an adverse employment action. So here, if we follow it, we've got the chief of police and being viewed as not wanting to report to female need. We've got awareness by the governing body that this is going on and that that contributed to the firing of Meade. Meanwhile, she was prevented from taking the steps that were advised by her own counsel or the, uh, the labor counsel for the township to do what she needed to do to properly manage the chief of police. This is not the cat's paw theory that was suggested by the Amici. That is that a biased subordinate uses the decision maker as a dupe to trigger discriminatory employment action. So the lad continues to grow in its reach and is stitched together so that litigants know what they're running into. Recall our uh, case that Bruce Greenberg walked through at length with us. That was the Rios v. Mita Pharmaceutical, where two racial slurs by a supervisor were sufficient to give rise to a valid cause of action by a fired employee of Mita Pharma. Next, I will switch gears to a pro tanto case, Glassman v. Friedel, F-R-I-E-D-E-L. And uh, I have to be honest, I've always found comparative negligence, contributory negligence, a little fuzzy in my mind. We are a comparative negligence state. So as long as the plaintiff is not more than half liable, the plaintiff has an ability to recover. In this case, the plaintiff really endures a hellish few weeks. Ms. Glassman is a 45-year-old who trips and falls and needs to have surgery to repair a fractured left ankle. She's hospitalized at Hackensack Meridian Riverview Medical Center and ultimately dies three weeks after the surgery of a pulmonary embolism. Complete nightmare. Her husband pursues the case, wrongful death action. And so we've got, as the court broke it down, two sets of defendants. We've got the property defendants, so it's the owner of the building and parcel of land where the restaurant was, the restaurant where she fell and was injured. And then you've got the medical defendants, hospital doctors, nurses, etc., that are subject of the other part of the claim. So when we were in law school and absurd hypotheticals were offered and we were perhaps chuckling and there were funny names given to the plaintiffs and defendants and then you've got a real life case. And, and so the law for pushing 45 years was 
Trulufo, C-I-L-U-F-F-O, the Middlesex General Hospital. It's a 1977 appellate division case that deals with this Protonto issue or successor liability issue. And the court really gives an excellent lesson. And for those like me who never really got it, there's a breakdown of how this ought to go where you've got multiple defendants. In this case, we have two clear categories, property defendants and medical defendants. And there are settling defendants and non-settling defendants. So how do you do all this? Well, the court lays it out following you know, kind of the line of cases, starting with Chalufo and others, also rolling in the method of apportioning damages set forth in the restatement of torts. So first, the non-settling defendants can make out a case proving that the settling defendants were liable and obviously trying to push as much liability onto the settling defendants as possible. The plaintiffs who previously asserted negligence on the part of the settling defendant can not make a claim, no, no, that defendant was not liable at all, i.e. trying to maximize the recovery from the non-settling defendant. The court's procedure allows the plaintiffs to argue that the settling defendants were, negligence was a minor component, but not that they had no negligence. Nice try on the plaintiff's part, I'm sure, but that's not how it's going to work under this uh, Glassman model. Next, the court needs to instruct the jury to quantify damages based upon the first event, the first causative event. Key here is to not tell the jury that the amount of damages that were agreed upon with the settling defendants. Then the jury should be instructed on allocating damages that arise out of the second causative event, making sure that the sort of second event, the damages associated with the second event, ate up to 100%. So here you've got uh, half a dozen doctors and nurses and hospitals. So if you're going to allocate responsibility among the, the second batch of defendants, it's got to add up to 100% for the second causative event. And then back to the trial court, who's going to have some heavy lifting to mold all of this together to create one fair recovery to the plaintiff and also fair to the settling and ultimately the non-settling defendants so that the plaintiff doesn't double recover and the second non-settling defendants don't pay for the double recovery. So it's an interesting case and I should have started where I usually start. This is a unanimous opinion and this was authored by Justice Patterson and it's a very interesting and very clear writing and it was a big help to me. I might be able to explain this to somebody at a backyard barbecue or cocktail party. Certainly, I hope the same for those that listen to this. We have to listen to it a couple of times. Two more cases. One, Stewart versus New Jersey Turnpike Authority. This accident literally occurred within walking distance, virtually of my office, on the Garden State Parkway in Tom's River. 
Here, the plaintiffs were operating a motorcycle, and the operator, Thomas, felt a wobble, so he attempted to pull over, or he's attempting to pull over the back passenger, Julie, presumably his wife, based upon the names and so forth, is ejected from the motorcycle. The motorcycle tips over and he slides down with it. Both are severely injured, and they sue. They sue the highway authority, early asphalt, George Holmes construction, Stavola construction. The allegation is that they went over an overpass and a piece of metal was protruding out of the overpass that damaged the motorcycle, caused this horrible injury for these folks. At oral argument, during the summary judgment proceedings below, the plaintiff's counsel switched from merely that there was a protrusion coming out of the uh, joint to a slightly different argument that the asphalt was uneven. So there's two theories, two factual theories on the case. One referred to as the joint theory, that the joint was defective, it was a piece of metal protruding, and the other is the asphalt theory, that the asphalt between one side and the other side of the expansion joint on the overpass was not even, and that gave rise to the wobble and ultimately this terrible accident. So that was the procedural posture of the case coming up. The trial court granted summary judgment, essentially finding that there was really, there's no negligence, there's no proof here that there was anything wrong with the roadway. There was no expert testimony regarding the road condition. At some point well before the Supreme Court, two of the defendants got out. George Harms Construction and Stavola Construction were out by consent, leaving the Highway Authority and Earl Asphalt as the defendants as the court went up. The appellate division blended what the Supreme Court called the joint theory and the asphalt theory together and said there's enough of a factual dispute here to let this case survive and reversed the appellate division. The court, in a, another unanimous opinion by Justice Solomon, found a couple of things. First, that the plaintiffs should not have been permitted to raise a new factual theory at oral argument after discovery was complete and summary judgment was being litigated, number one. Number two, that that was not material because it's not a fact. So does oral argument still matter? I would say in my 25 years of doing this, the impact of oral argument has gone down tremendously. So it makes us better writers and researchers, but does oral argument matter? Sure, it matters. And when counsel represents a new and different theory, they're exposing the case to different level of scrutiny. Here, this was really emphasized in the Supreme Court that it should not be done, it should not be permitted. However, the court didn't find it was a material issue because, as the court also reminds us here, counsel's arguments are not evidence. We do not bring the facts to the case. The case has facts, they're discovered, and then they're organized and shuffled and spun, but we don't create the facts. There was no evidence that the roadway was uneven. In fact, there was photographs produced by the defendants 
to show that, to the contrary that it was perfectly even and that Earl had followed the specifications provided in the government contract. So the court finds that the plaintiffs could not meet their burden for premises liability under the Tort Claims Act. And as a result, the other defendant, Earl Asphalt, also is covered by the Tort Claims Act under a theory of derivative immunity, whereby if the contractor follows the plans put together by the government, the contractor will be immunized from tort liability. And last case, Cooper Hospital University Medical Center versus Selective Insurance Company of America. This is a really weird esoteric case, and it applies to, at max, 150 people who had auto accidents before December 5, 1980, and who continue to need uh, medical treatment arising from the auto accident. In this case, a gentleman who is really not key to the Supreme Court litigation, named Meekouch, M-E-C-O-U-C-H, was injured in an automobile accident in 1977 that left him paralyzed from the waist down. So we're talking 44 years prior to this case reaching the New Jersey Supreme Court. He had an extensive hospitalization in 2016, and Cooper Hospital went looking to get paid on an $850,000 invoice and received about $85,000 from Medicare and then wanted Selective to pay the rest. There's an extensive discussion regarding changes in federal law, which prior to December 5, 1980, federal law provided that Medicare would be a willing payer for medical bills associated with automobile accidents that subsequently changed and shifted the burden away from Medicare as a primary, as the primary payer on even automobile-related accidents. Here, the court found that the law provides Cooper Hospital with no remedy against selective because of the law and the age of the gentleman's injury all the way back to 1977, and that all that Cooper Hospital could seek from selective insurance would have been deductibles and co-pays. So that's a really detailed analysis by Justice Albin for a unanimous court on a very narrow issue that now deals with only 149 other people because obviously Mr. Meekouch's particular case has been addressed. So I hope you like this format of batching things, money and insurance and claims together versus some of the other types of issues that we talk about. I'm going to keep going with this model for a little while. These cases are interesting because two have pretty big impacts. The Mead case, the Ladd case, a bottom-up discrimination case, and also the Protonto case, Glassman. And then two kind of narrow cases dealing with counsel changing arguments after a couple of years of discovery and summary judgment motion while on his or her feet, and then a really, really narrow decision. So that's what you get from the New Jersey, New Jersey Supreme Court. You get big policy cases like Mead and Glassman, 
and you get narrow, narrow interpretations of federal statute together with insurance and PIP. So, day in the life of the New Jersey Supreme Court. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I can share this again. I'm recording towards the end of February. My goal is to do this every two weeks. But after COVID in January, I lost my voice for six days in February. I don't know if it's related to COVID or not. I have no idea. But it's semi-back. And uh, we'll keep plugging away. That's it for today. Thanks very much.